If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be in uh, verses 14 through 21. And I have to uh, preface everything I'm about to say by telling you all that I uh, took some cold medicine this morning. So if I say uh, things that sound crazier than normal, that's probably why. All right, Matthew 17, we're going to be reading verses 14 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the rows, and this morning's passage is in those Bibles on page 822. Again, that's Matthew 17, verses 14 through 20. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, that it was inspired by your Holy Spirit and that men wrote down what you would have them write and they used human language to do it. God, I pray that this morning, as we look at what happens in this passage, and as we look at what Jesus says in this passage, that, Lord, your word would challenge us. God, your word would push us beyond ourselves. Your word would show us how we, too, lack faith like the disciples. And that we would realize that your spirit within us, just like you empowered Matthew to write these words that you will empower us to do things. And we pray that, Lord, we would listen to Jesus and what he says this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week, we looked at the first part of Matthew 17. We looked at Jesus' transfiguration where he he goes up on this mountain with, uh, with James and John and Peter and they have this, this amazing and kind of slightly odd experience. They see Jesus' glory. Moses and Elijah appear out of nowhere. They hear this voice from heaven. And this voice from heaven tells them that Jesus is God's son, God is pleased with his son, and that they should listen to God's son. And what we saw in that passage was that the main point for us and the main point for the disciples was that they need to listen to Jesus. We talked about how listening isn't just hearing. It's not just audibly 
uh, listening to what's going on. But for the Jews, listening also conveyed the idea of doing. They, they wouldn't, didn't really listen to what someone else said unless they did what that person said. In our passage today, this, this is closely connected to what just happened. This is Jesus coming down from the mountain with James and John and Peter, and they come face to face with uh, failure. We, we find out what the other disciples were doing when Jesus comes off the mountain. Jesus comes down, and we, we find out what the other nine were doing, and they're not doing what Jesus told them to do. Right? Jesus and James and John and Peter are up on this mountain. They hear this voice. The voice says, listen to Jesus. And as soon as Jesus comes down the mountain, he realizes that his other disciples are there, and they weren't listening to him. They weren't doing what he said. They didn't have the faith to do what he said. And what we're going to see in this passage is that without faith, they're not going to be able to do what Jesus says. Without faith, they're not empowered to do what he said. They can't listen to Jesus without believing in Jesus. That's our, our main point this morning. Our main point is that kingdom works. Kingdom works means doing what Jesus told us to do, doing what the king wants us to do. Kingdom works are performed by faith in the king. That's the main point. Without our faith properly located in Christ, without him as the object of our faith, we won't be able to do what he's called us to do. So we're going to see in our passage. Verse 14, right? This is where Jesus comes down to the mountain. As soon as he comes down, as soon as he's, he's, he's kind of come back to reality from this, this great experience with his father, where his father says, I'm pleased with you. Keep doing what you're doing. He's, he's met by this man. This man comes and this man kneels before him. And there's three things we need to notice about what this man does and what this man says. The first thing is that we need to notice how he asks and then ask like him. This guy comes up to Jesus. He, he, he kneels before him, right? So he expresses humility. He, he, he humbles himself. He recognizes that Jesus is, is greater. Jesus is more significant than he is. And so he throws himself down at his feet and then he pleads for mercy, and he pleads for mercy on behalf of his son. And as I was reading this passage this week and thinking about this passage this week and, and thinking about how this, this father brings this request to Jesus for the life of his son, how bold this guy is. He's, he's humble, but he's confident. He comes and he says, do this for me, please. Have mercy on me for my son. He doesn't come like we do, right? He doesn't do the, the cold and a super theological God, if it's your will, please heal this person. He doesn't do that. He says, Jesus, I want this to be your will. I want you to heal my son. Have mercy on me for my son. He asks him to do what he wants him to do. And I know some of you are thinking, wait a second. Didn't Jesus pray that way in the garden? Didn't Jesus come to the Father and say, I, I'd like this not to happen, but I still want your will to be done? Yes. Jesus did do that, but it's different for him because he knows what God's will is, because he's God. For us, I think when we pray that way, when we, when we pray on behalf of, say, healing or a job or a financial need or, or, or whatever the prayer request might be, when we come to God and we say, God, I, I want you to do this thing, but, but I also want you to do your will. What we're really trying to do, I think, is give God an out. God, I, I really want this job. I really want you to heal this sick person. But, but part of me doesn't think you can do it. 
And so I'm going to tag on if it's your will. So then if you don't do it, I'll be okay with it and you'll be okay with it. And everybody that hears my prayer will be okay with it. And I don't think we should pray that way. Because I think that if we're in a situation like this guy is, I think God's will is pretty clear. Right? He, he, his will is not that anyone should perish. His will is that people should live. That doesn't mean that he's going to heal everyone. That doesn't mean that no one is going to die. We know that in this fallen world, that's the way life works. But I think that we should come to God and say, God, do this. Let, let this be your will. And recognize that even if it's not, that doesn't mean that he hasn't heard our prayer. That doesn't mean that he wasn't able to do it. But I think we should stop hiding behind our, our theology because I think if we really, really believe that God could do all of these things, we wouldn't pray like we do. Was that clear? All right. I think we should ask like this guy does. Come and beg God to do things knowing that he hears us. The second thing we should notice about this guy is the fact that he comes to Jesus seeking mercy for someone else. Up to this point in Matthew, there have been tons of people who have done this. In, in uh, Matthew 8, the uh, centurion comes on behalf of his servant. In Matthew 9, this, this ruler comes on behalf of his daughter. In Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman comes and asks for Jesus to have mercy on her daughter. And then here in Matthew 17, this father comes and he asks Jesus to have mercy on his son. Almost half. Almost half of the healing stories up to this point in Matthew have been people coming on behalf of someone else. They're not coming and saying, heal me. They're not coming and saying, have have mercy on me. They're coming and saying, do this for them. And I think that that should inform the way we bring our requests to God. Right? Our prayers, and again, this is me talking about me, but I imagine that we're probably similar in this. A lot of our prayers are me-centric. We come to God and we say, do this for me, do that for me, change this in me, make me better in this way. We're focused on what, what, what he can do for us. But we see these people like this father coming and saying, do this for him. Do this for her. Do this for this person. Show mercy to them. And even in the Lord's Prayer, right, where, where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach me to pray, Jesus teaches them, and what does he teach them? The first half of the prayer is, is God-focused. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done. It's all focused on him and what he's going to do and who he is. Second part is this. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. There's no yous or, or, or me's or I's in the Lord's Prayer. There's no first person singular. It's all us. The, the Lord's Prayer is half God's focused, half community focused. It's half corporate focused. And so he's telling them, don't come and say, do these things for me. He's saying, saying, come and do these things for us. So even in our prayers, we should be more focused on other people and ask God not to just do things for us individually, but do things for us corporately. I think that at our church, you know, we talk a lot about missional living and being missional. And 
if you've heard that word a lot and don't know exactly what we mean by that, this is what we mean. Missional means living all of life for God's glory by making disciples who make disciples. That's what it means to be missional. By taking everything in your life and trying to orient it around the purpose of making disciples who make disciples with the end that God is glorified through that. And so we, we, we take that mentality and we apply that to the way, I hope we do, we apply that to the way we, we work at our jobs, the way we go to school, the way we hang out in our neighborhood, all, all the things we do. And I think that one area that we miss is our prayer lives. And our prayer lives were not very missional. We're still focused on us. We're still focused on what happens inside our community. And what we see with all these people that come to, come to Jesus and Matthew is that they're not focused on themselves. They're focused on other people in the way that they pray. And so I think that we should do that too. We should learn from this Father and come to Jesus asking not just for ourselves, but asking for others and making our prayers more outwardly focused. The third thing we should notice is that even though he's, he's asking Jesus to have mercy on his son, any parent would acknowledge that he's also asking Jesus to have mercy on him, right? Because clearly he wants his son to be healed. And I think that if, if any of us parents in the room were in this situation, we would have the same kind of attitude that this guy has. I mean, look at what Jesus says, or Matthew tells us this, this son suffered. He's an epileptic. He has this demon. The demon throws him into the fire. The demon throws him in the water. I mean, like this father, I think, would have been the one to pull his son out of the water. This father would have been one of the people that would have pulled him out of the fire. Like he's just hanging out with his son. They're walking down the road, and all of a sudden this kid just jumps in the lake. And the, and the demon is trying to kill his son. And so I think any parent in this situation would have done whatever they could do to, to free their kid from this burden, to help them with this problem. And this father recognizes by this point that there's not an answer. He's, he, he would feel, I think, helpless to do anything to deliver his son from this burden. And so he comes to Jesus. He acknowledges the fact that he is helpless. He acknowledges the fact that he's in need, and, and he asks Jesus for mercy. And that's exactly what mercy is. Mercy is, is love based on the helplessness, based on the need of the one who is loved. And that's what he asks for, and I think that's what Jesus is going to give him, what we'll see later in the passage. The other thing we should notice real quick is just what, what this demon is doing to this boy. You know, we don't really talk about demons a lot because it kind of freaks us out, but what Satan's mission is, what we see in Scripture, is that Satan's mission is to destroy the work of God in the world in whatever way he can, right? In, in John, he says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, not just randomly, right? Because we see the wicked prosper everywhere. That's what David says in the Psalms. Like we see cities like Vegas, which are built on sin, and like that city isn't being destroyed, Satan's not trying to work against that. He's working against specifically the work of God in the world. And, and, and a major way that happens is by working against the image of God in people. And so what we're seeing with this boy, what, what Matthew describes for us, what this father describes to Jesus, is that this demon is trying to kill him. Right? He doesn't throw him into the fire for no reason. He throws him into the fire because Satan wants this kid to die. 
and his father, both of them, want him to live. And so he comes to Jesus first, right? He comes to the disciples, and he asks the disciples to heal him. The disciples can't do it, so he takes the next step and brings him to Jesus. And look at what Jesus says in verse 17 when he finds out that the disciples could not heal his son. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. All right, this first thing he says, he says, O faithless and twisted generation. The language that Jesus is using here is language that comes from the Old Testament. It's language that the prophets used to criticize Israel for how they followed God or, or really how they didn't follow God. And so when Jesus kind of picks up this language and applies it to the disciples primarily, but also to the crowds, he's saying that, that you're just like all the Israelites throughout history. You're, you're failing to follow God. You're failing to listen to God. You're rejecting him, just like everyone that has come before you. And then he says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? What this tells us is that the disciples' failure, the disciples' unbelief actually affects Jesus. I think both emotionally and in some ways physically. Like he says, how long am I to bear with you? Jesus has to endure their failure. He has to put up with it. He has to, to walk alongside of it. And their continual lack of understanding, their continual lack of faith, their continual lack of belief, and their failure to do what he said is, is causing him grief. And he says, how long do I have to be with you? I think that this would have affected the disciples. And what's interesting about what Jesus says is that I bet the disciples read the Old Testament like we do. Right? We read the stories in the Old Testament about the Israelites. You know, they, they, they have this huge experience of God and then they reject him. And then they have another huge experience of God and they repent and they come back and then they reject him. And then the cycle happens over and over and over and over and over again. And when I read those stories, I'm tempted to look at them and be like, I can't believe those idiots. Why didn't they get it? Right? They've, they've got this, this pillar of smoke. They've got the, the, the tabernacle filled with God's glory. They see people die when they reject God. Why haven't they gotten it? And then Jesus says to the disciples, you're just like them. You fail just like they failed. You're faithless just like they're faithless. You're twisted just like they were. And we do the same thing with the disciples. Right? We, we see Peter confess Jesus is the Christ, and then we say, I can't believe that he gets called Satan like 10 verses later. We see them, you know, here, after all this time in Matthew, after everything they've seen, right? They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen him heal lepers. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him calm, calm storms. They've heard him say, go out and do what you've seen me doing. They've heard him say, you have authority over these things. And yet they're still missing the point. They're still failing to understand and 
it's tempting for us to be like, what is wrong with them? Why don't they get it? And I think that Jesus says the same thing to us. Because the biggest problem when we read the Bible that way is that what we're reading into the Bible is that we would have been good where they wouldn't have been. We're we're assuming that we would have done things right if we were given the chance. We're assuming that we would have done things better if we, would have get, we were given the chance. We're assuming that, that we would have had faith where they failed. We would have obeyed God where they rejected him. And the problem with that, and the problem with what the disciples are doing, is that there's, there's only one good guy in this story. Right? There's only one person who has faith. There's only one person who continually obeys in the right way, and that's Christ. And so... We need to come to Scripture recognizing that the only one worth imitating is Him. And this is why He can say, how long am I to be with you? And we can't. In verse 18, Jesus rebukes the demon. The demon comes out. The boy's healed instantly. The disciples try. They can't do it. Jesus just says a word and it's done. And I think that this, this, this image here, this isn't what this text is about, but I think it's a great picture of what happens to us when, when Jesus saves us. Right? We have this, this sin nature because of the fall that's within us. Right? And the way Paul describes it in Romans 7 is, is I do the things I don't want to do. And I can't do the good things that I want to do. So he's, he's got this thing within him that, that's not allowing him to do what he wants and is causing him to do what he doesn't want. Similar to this kid, right? This kid doesn't want to fall in the fire. He doesn't want to fall in the water. Well, he might want to fall in the water after he falls in the fire, but... He, he, he's controlled by this thing within him that's causing him to do things that he doesn't want to do, and he can't do the things that he wants to do. And Jesus comes along at the request for mercy, and he, he speaks a word, and it's gone. And because of what Jesus has done, now this kid can walk around where he wants to go, and he doesn't have to go where he doesn't want to go. And it's the same way for us. You know, Paul talks about, about how that is within us. And when Jesus comes, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That means that that thing, that sin nature that's within us that causes us to do what we don't want to do is, is gone. It doesn't have power over us. We're not enslaved to it. We're not forced to do what it wants us to do because he's said the word and it doesn't have any power over us anymore. And I think we should recognize that, that our break with sin is just as clean and just as clear and just as decisive as this kid's break with this demon is. And so the next time you're facing temptation, don't believe the lie that you have to give into it because it's within you. Remember that Jesus has said the word and it doesn't have power anymore and we can say no and we should say no. The disciples come to Jesus after this, right? They see him do it, and they think, why couldn't we do that if it's that easy? 
And he says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So the first question about this is, why is this a faith problem? Why is their problem with not being able to do this for this kid, why is it a faith problem? Because, I mean, I can look at this and say, well, I've never cast out a demon. You know, it's not surprising to me that they couldn't do it. I can't do it either. But Jesus says it's not something that he's only able to do. It's not something that he has power that they don't have. That's not the answer. The answer is they don't have faith. So why is it a faith problem? I think it's a faith problem because of what Jesus tells them back in Matthew 10. Back in Matthew 10, we're going to read a few verses here. He says this, And he called to, them, he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pain, give without pay. There's two things there that are really important for our passage today. The first is verse 1. He called to his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So, first thing, Jesus gave them authority. It's not that they have the power. It's not that they have the authority. Jesus has the authority and he gives it to them to go out and to do these things, specifically cast out demons. Second thing, verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So the first thing, he gives them the authority to do it. The second thing, he tells them to do it. And so the reason why in Matthew 17, Jesus says that they have a faith problem is because number one, they're not believing that he really has given them this authority. And number two, they're not acting on that in obedience. Because what we see in the New Testament is that faith and obedience are always intimately connected. You don't really have one if you don't have the other. Faith produces obedience and obedience is the natural outworking of faith. And he's saying they have little faith because they're not believing that they do have this authority that he told them that they had way back in Matthew 10 because they're not acting on that authority. That's why they couldn't do it. They have the ability. They don't have the belief. And then he says this thing that's surprising to me and taken out of context by lots of people. He says... If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing. Nothing will be impossible. So, does this mean that if I have enough faith, 
I can grow wings and fly. Nothing will be impossible. That means that's not impossible, right? Can I move objects with my mind if I have enough faith? Don't laugh, because I know some of you have tried it. This is what people say. Well, they don't say those things. But they say that what this means is that if, if, if we have enough faith, if we can just muster up enough faith in ourselves, then, then all these amazing things will happen for us because God honors our faith. And I think the people that say that are wrong. They're wrong because they're not paying attention to the context of this passage. What this passage is about as we talked about at the beginning with our main point, is that kingdom works. Doing works for the kingdom are accomplished by kingdom faith, by faith in the king. What this means to me is that this this nothing will be impossible. It's not nothing in the whole world. It's nothing of the things that Jesus has told us to do for the kingdom. They don't have enough faith that they can cast out demons. And Jesus said, you have authority and you should cast out demons. They can do anything that he has told them to do if they have faith. None of the things that he has told them to do will be impossible. And what's interesting about this is he talks about the mustard seed. It's this really, really small seed. So right there, it's telling us that these people that say, oh, we just need to have more faith. If you have enough faith, you won't get sick. You'll have all this money. You'll get a new car. Jesus isn't telling them to have more faith. He's telling them to have small faith, but small faith in the right thing. He's emphasizing the object of their faith, not the amount of their faith. And obviously, the object of faith is him. They need to believe what he said. They need to believe who he is. And do what he said. We're going to come back to this idea in a minute. First, I have a little exercise for you. Everybody, look at your Bibles and read verse 20. And when you're done, look up. All right, now look down and read verse 22. So read 20, then read 22. And then when you're done, look up. Now look down and read verse 21. (laughs) Obviously, some of you are confused. Right? In my Bible, it goes verse 20 and then verse 22. So, either the editors of the ESV cannot count, or something else is happening in this passage. So, first question what's going on here? If you look, if you have an ESV, and if you, some of you, if you have like a King James or New King James or a New American Standard, you, you do have a verse 21. Uh, some of us don't have a verse 21. And so, the footnote here for the ESV says this, some manuscripts insert verse 21, but this, never, this, this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. 
So, why is there a verse that's not in the passage that's down in the footnote? What's happening here? Essentially, what's happening is what the footnote says, is that there are some manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew that have verse 21. There are some manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew that don't have verse 21. In fact, there are many manuscripts of Matthew that don't have verse 21. So, let me explain this. So, nobody's worried that, you know, the Bible has errors or mistakes or anything like that. The first thing we need to realize is that chapter numbers and verse numbers weren't part of the original text. Some point throughout history, uh, a guy added them in. He added them in to make it easier for us to study the Bible, right? Imagine if this morning I stood up here and said, uh, open your Bibles up to where uh, Matthew says, and, kind of towards the back. (laughs) That would be pretty complicated, right? So they put these verses, chapters, and verses in there so that they could refer to specific things in the Bible in an easier way. That's very helpful. Obviously, when those were added, verse 21 was in whatever the the Bible was using that that guy had. So that's the first thing. Those things aren't original. So we don't need to freak out and say, oh no, verse 21 isn't here. Clearly, Matthew wrote 21 when he wrote his gospel and for some reason the ESV took it out. The second thing that helps us understand what's going on here is if we know and understand how the Bible was, was published and, and, and distributed. Because right now, you know, we can all have a, a copy of Matthew that is exactly the same. The text is laid out the same way uh, so that I can say, before I start my sermon, if you're using a Bible that's under the chairs, it's on page 822. Because in every single one of those Bibles, it's on the same page. It's in the same, same way. It's laid out exactly the same. It's the same font. Because we can print you know, however many copies of the same book we want. It didn't work that way, right? The way it worked is kind of similar to uh, if today, you know, I were to come up here with a sheet of paper and you guys were all to have notepads and I read that sheet of paper and you guys wrote down everything I said. That's how they would copy the Bible, right? There'd be a room full of people with desks and parchment and one person would stand on the front and they would read it and the other people would write it all down. That's how they copied the Bible. And... By, by looking at, you know, all these different copies of manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, what we can see is that there were some groups that uh, had specific tendencies when they would copy. And, and one of those things, there was a group of scribes that would try to make one gospel look like the other gospel. And so in this passage, what, what, what is added in here, this kind never comes out by prayer and fasting, is actually how Mark reports this passage. And so at some point throughout history, this scribe is, is copying the Gospel of Matthew, and he's saying, wait a second. In, in Mark, Jesus says this. So he goes over to Mark, he, he copies it down, and he adds it in Matthew. And then, later on, someone else copied his manuscript, and someone else copied that. And so there's this, this, these, this number of manuscripts that have this verse when the vast majority of them don't have it. And that's why the editors of the ESV have said, we don't think this was part of Matthew. We think at some point, some misguided scribe said, hey, let's stick this in here. Because the opposite of it doesn't make sense, right? If, if Matthew had really written a verse in, why would some guys say, well, I don't really like this verse. I'm taking it out, right? Maybe he was really committed to 
his food and he didn't want to fast, and so he said, no fasting. That side doesn't make sense. The third thing we should notice is that verse 21, regardless of of what you think about whether it should be in there or whether it not should be in there, it's not like it's saying something completely different. Right? It's not like this verse says, Jesus is not God. It's not like this verse says, uh, you know, you can't do it because uh, you don't have enough physical strength. What it says is it only comes out by prayer and fasting. And that's connected to the idea of faith. And it's also what, as I said earlier, what, what Mark has in his passage. So what's happening here is that Matthew doesn't decide to tell us what Jesus said there. And that happens all over the place in the New Testament because there's no way that they could write down every single thing that Jesus said or the Bible would be ridiculously long. There's no way they could write down everything that Jesus did or the Bible would be ridiculously long. And that's exactly what John says at the end of his gospel. And so Matthew is is choosing, I want to tell the story this way. I want to emphasize what I think is important. And that's what he does. And that's why he doesn't include this part. But it's still saying the same thing. It's still emphasizing that that we need to have faith, we need to trust God. And one way, like Jesus says in Mark, that we do that is by by praying and fasting. Does anybody have any questions about that? I know that that's kind of an odd topic. Part of me didn't want to bring it up, but I knew that some of you would be like, wait a second, verse 21 isn't in my Bible, what's going on here? And then you'd be freaked out about it forever. Does that make sense? Is anybody worried that the Bible has errors or mistakes or feel like you can't read your ESV anymore? All right. So, verse 21 aside, this passage ends with a huge emphasis on faith. I think it'll be helpful, you know, we've talked about what happens in the passage and to kind of zoom out and think about it as a whole. This man needs help. The disciples can't help him. They can't help him because they don't have faith. And what's really interesting about this is in their question, right? They say, why weren't we able to do this? But the reality is that they've, they've never been able to do it. Like e- even when they get sent out in Matthew 10, they do some of these things even then, it's not them doing it. It's still Jesus doing it. It's, it's their faith in his work for them that's causing those things to happen. They're not the ones who are healing people. They're not the ones who are casting out demons. They're not the one who are causing people to believe in Jesus. He's the one that does that. And so even though they say, why couldn't we do it? They've never been able to. Here, they couldn't do it because they weren't believing that he would do it like he said he would. The main point is that kingdom works are performed by kingdom faith. And so how does that connect to us today? Right? Should we all expect to walk out of this place and start casting out demons because we have faith in who Jesus is and what he's done? I think that the obvious place for us to focus is on the Great Commission, right? Because that's where Jesus kind of gives us our final task. But at the same time, I think that the Great Commission gets a lot of focus 
to the exclusion of other passages in Matthew. Like, right, we, we focus on that. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you to do. Right? Which is good. The Great Commission's awesome. We should work towards fulfilling it. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's not that new. It's not that different from everything else that has happened in Matthew's gospel. I feel like a lot of times we, we get to the end of Matthew and we think, all right, this is amazing. Now he's finally sending the disciples out. He's been doing that throughout Matthew. Right? That's what we just read about in Matthew 10. He, he sends them out. The only thing that's new about the Great Commission is the audience. He says, go to all nations, not just to Israel. And so what he told them to do in, in Matthew 10 is still what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to go out. They're supposed to say what he said, right? He gives them his message. And then he gives them his ministry. Go out and do what he did. And so, back to that question. Should we expect to go out and, and cast out demons or heal people or cleanse lepers or you know, do these amazing works that Jesus tells the disciples to go out and do? I don't know. I think that our answer should be yes. I think that we don't, we don't see a lot of those things happen. Um, but I think that we also don't try to do those things either. Um, I think that the point is that he, what, what we see in Matthew 10 and what we see in Matthew 28 uh, and what we see in the rest of the New Testament is that Jesus has given us authority to do the things that he's told us to do. And so, however you understand what he's told us to do, the point is, is that we need to walk in faith, trusting that he is going to equip us or empower us or uh, give us the ability to do what he's called us to do. And so, I think we we walk in obedience, having faith that Jesus is really going to do what he said, that he really is given us authority, that he really has died on the cross and freed us from sin, that he really has given us his spirit, which is going to cause people to believe in him. I think what we have to ask, you know, we we focus more on the kind of outlandish things like, should I go try to cast out a demon? Because that's easy. Because practically, I don't think I'm going to be faced with that this week. I might be. Who knows? But chances are I'm not going to be faced with having to cleanse a leper this week. We shouldn't ask, like, you know, these, these big, specific, you know, kind of miraculous things. Should I try to do that? I think what we should ask ourselves, are we doing the, the really clear, really everyday, simple things that he's told us to do in his word? Are we sharing Christ with other people? Are we walking in obedience? Are we having the character that he told us to have in the Sermon on the Mount? Are we doing these things that he's told us to do? Or are we a faithless and twisted generation? Are we people that Jesus has to bear with, like the disciples? I think we need to ask ourselves, what ways are we we falling short? What ways are we having this, this little faith that causes the disciples to fail to believe in what Jesus has said and fail to do what Jesus has told them to do? He says that 
you know, we'll, we'll be able to, to move mountains. But I don't really want to see that happen. I mean, it'd be cool. But the reality is, is that what I would like to see happen is hopefully what you would like to see happen, and that's to see our city and our nation and our world transformed through the power of the gospel. That's supposed to be the reason why we are all here. And if that's not why you're at this church, you should probably find another church because that's what we want to be about. And what we need to realize is that this isn't just going to happen by us just showing up on Sunday. It's not going to just happen by us going to community group during the week. It's not just going to happen by us having, you know, a projector and some music and having wine for the Lord's Supper. Those things aren't going to make the Great Commission magically start being accomplished in our city. The bottom line is that we can't do anything to make that happen. Just like the disciples couldn't, either way, cast out that demon, what is going to cause that to be accomplished is by us having faith and that Christ will do what he said he would do, and us walking in obedience and doing what he has told us to do. And I think that if we really want to see those things happen in Hannibal, if we really want to see those things happen in the world, it should cause us to seriously evaluate where our faith is placed and whether or not obedience is coming out of that. And I think that most of us would recognize that Jesus would say a very similar thing to us, like he says to the disciples here. And so the practical question is, If we have little faith, how do we have more faith? How do we increase our faith? And lucky for us is that Jesus has answered this question. In Luke 17, the disciples come and they say, Lord, how do we increase our faith? Some of you might be in that place. And this is what he says. He says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, this is exactly what he says in Matthew You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. If you have enough faith, this will happen. And then he says this. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So disciples come to Jesus wanting a practical answer. They want to see their faith increased. The first thing he says is essentially, your faith doesn't need to be increased. It's not the amount that matters. It's the, the object. Don't, don't worry about how much you have. Worry about where you're placing your faith. That's the first thing. We've already talked about that. I think that practically how we do that, how we make sure our faith is in Christ instead of in something else, is, number one, we know who he is by studying him in his word, and we know what he has told us to do and what he's done for us by studying him in his word. That's how we make sure we have faith in Christ and not faith in something else. The second thing he says is surprising. He says, if you have a servant who has spent all day working in the field and he comes in 
would you say to him, why don't you sit down and eat? And he says, no, you wouldn't say that. You'd say, clean yourself up, make me dinner, and then when you're done with that, you can eat. And then he says, and after he's done that, would you thank him? And he says, no. And he says, so also, when you have done, this is the disciples, when the disciples have done all that they were commanded, will say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty. What Jesus is saying there, and, and what's, what's the, the key part is when he says, would you thank the servant? And the answer is no, you wouldn't. The reason why the servant doesn't get thanked is because thanks or thankfulness or gratitude is a response to grace. The response to someone doing something for you that you don't deserve. And this guy that he's talking about in this passage in the master-slave relationship deserves for the servant to do what he's supposed to do. It's his job. It's just like if your employer hands you a paycheck, you don't say, thank you so much for my paycheck. You say, that's right, I earned that. I worked hard this week. Thankfulness, I'm not saying we shouldn't be grateful people, obviously, but when we earn something, we don't need to be thankful for getting what is our due. We're thankful when we don't get what is our due. And the analogy here is that the disciples don't tell Jesus thank you. Everybody no, sorry. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples thank you. Because they don't show him grace. He shows them grace. They're just responding to the grace that they've been shown. Them working the fields. Them serving Christ. Them doing what he has called them to do. It's not them doing something special for him. It's not them going above and beyond. It's them responding to the grace that they've been shown in the gospel. And so his answer to how do we increase our faith is, number one, make sure your faith is in me. And number two, recognize how dependent you are on me and do what I've said. That's probably not the answer we want. We want increasing our faith to be something that's easy for us. We want 10 steps to increasing our faith. But Jesus' practical answer to the disciples is, place your faith in me, recognize you need me, and do what I've said. All of it. And when you're done with all of that, when you've done everything I've told you to do, you'll still say, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what I'm supposed to do. Obedience is a natural response to faith. And obedience is a, is a product of faith. And so if kingdom works, if being obedient to Jesus is produced by faith, and if we want to increase our faith, we just need to make sure that our faith is in Christ and that we're doing what he's told us to do. It's, it's walking in obedience is how we increase our faith because it flows out of it. As we move to the Lord's Supper, as I was thinking this week about you know, how the Lord's Supper is connected to this passage and how the Lord's Supper ties into to what we've been talking about this morning, I thought about the reality that when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he says that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we you know, drink the cup, which symbolizes the fact that Jesus' blood was poured out for us and for our sins, when we take the bread, which symbolizes that his 
body was broken on the cross. He, he suffered for us. He paid the penalty that we were due. When we, when we do those things, what Paul says is that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And that's why we at BC celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. But, in light of this passage, I think all of us need to remember that that shouldn't be the only time we do that each week. If, if, if we are only proclaiming his death when we take the Lord's Supper on Sunday, then we are living in disobedience to Jesus. And that's something that we need to be doing. We need to be walking in obedience to him so that he increases our faith, so that we're able to do more for him. Not to earn his favor, not to earn his pleasure, but to respond to the grace that he's shown us in the gospel. So now, as, as we take time to consider how this, this text connects to our life, I think for some of us, probably for most of us, we need to repent of our lack of faith. We need to confess the fact that we fail to believe that Jesus has really done what he said he's done, that he really has given us authority to do the work that he's called us to do. We need to repent of the fact that we lack faith to do what he's called us to do, that we don't walk in obedience as much as we should. And I think we need to respond to that conviction with, with renewed faith in Jesus, recognizing that he is the object of our faith, he is the source of it, and with the desire to obey him. Not to earn anything, but to recognize that no matter how much we do, even if we have done everything that he has told us to do, we are still unworthy servants who have just responded to the grace we've been shown in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often wonder why we're not able to do what you've told us to do. We fail to to walk in obedience to your word. We fail to have the character that you've called us to. We fail to have the behavior that you've called us to. We fail to have the witness to others that you've called us to. God, we recognize that we are no more able now to do those things than we were before your grace changed us. That we are dependent on you. That we need your spirit to work within us. We need the truth of your gospel to transform our hearts and minds. God, that we need your word to remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. God, we pray that you would increase our faith. That even though it doesn't seem practical, that we would remember that you are the object of our faith. Our faith doesn't need to have great quantity. It needs to be in you. 
no matter how much it is. God, that we would recognize that we aren't called to do things for you, for your kingdom, for your glory, to earn any kind of favor from you, to earn any kind of status from you, that we are called to obedience simply as a response to the grace that we've been shown and that we, no matter what we do, no matter how much we do, we are unworthy servants who are simply doing what you've told us. God, we pray that we would recognize that we are the ones that should be grateful. We are the ones that should be thankful that you don't owe us gratitude because you have shown us grace. God, we pray that you would increase our faith. Not so that we can see mountains or mulberry trees move, but so that we can see our city God, and the people that live next to us and the people that we work with and the people that we go to school with and the people we drive by changed by the power of the gospel just like you've changed us by the power of the gospel. God, help us to have faith that you will really accomplish in our city what your word says that you're willing to. And help us to walk in obedience to that will. Jesus, we thank you that just like you succeed in this passage where the disciples fail, just like you are able to do what they can't do, God, you have succeeded where we have failed. You walked in obedience. You are the only one who's righteous, and you, even though you were innocent, died for us, paid our penalty, and have given us your righteousness. Pray now that as we remind ourselves of that fact in the Lord's Supper, that you would renew our belief and renew our trust and renew our hope in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.